It was that text that Luther then later trans translated into German uh, that Calvin, uh, John Calvin, translated into French and Tyndale translated into English. And um, now one of the things that we had looked at when we were talking about Martin Luther was that his challenge to the church was for in the reformation of the church, not separation from the church. He wanted to reform it. And he was the first to, to articulate that the church is not a building mm -hmm. or an institution. It is the people. And he believed in the priesthood of all believers. And so he called not for the church to be the authority, but scripture to be the authority. And so this is very much in keeping with what's going on in Renaissance in Europe and especially in Italy, and um, that they were going back to the scripture. Scriptura sola, sola scriptura. Scripture only, only scripture. That's what they wanted as their foundation for the authority. Um, the pulpit replaced the altar as the dominant center of the building, and resurrection was central. Christ comes off of the cross. So he had crosses, but Christ came down off of it. And the buildings were stripped of images. Now because this Protestant movement was a grassroots movement, did not have funding, of course, from the church, and so we don't see new architecture being developed in mainland uh, Europe at this point in time. Um, in Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli, who's a contemporary thinker uh, with uh, Martin Luther, uh, was enamored with the word. It didn't matter if it was in Latin or Greek. He was just totally enamored with them. And uh, it was Erasmus that was his um, touchstone. And he was very critical of uh, celibacy even though he was a Catholic priest, um, he did fall in love, did marry, and was very critical of the Catholic celibacy. He was also critical of Lenten fasting he, uh, and the Mass. He felt like um, that if you were going to celebrate um, the uh, the mass that it should be as the Lord's Supper, not as transubstantiation, and he and Luther butted head on this particular point, because Luther still believed in transubstantiation of the of the body and the blood of Christ, whereas Zwingli said no, these are emblems to that are metaphors, um, and so he insisted on changing the terminology to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So you're beginning to see little glimmers of where we come from, right? Um, the images of Jesus, Mary, and the saints were removed from the churches in, in Switzerland. Um, and the Scotch-Irish who seized onto Zwingli's idea were known as Presbyterians. 
and of course this is the strain from which we we come through Thomas and Alexander Campbell. Um, they they were the English version of Zwingli's thoughts, and one of the things that's very interesting, I think, about this particular uh, man and his theology was that he was he was the first to sort of voice that the sovereign was not the king of the nation, but the sovereign was God, that he alone was the authority, and that the scripture was an express an expression of of his being, and therefore he was the authority. So God is sovereign. We come, we get that from Zwingli. Um, the second generation of thought came with John Calvin. He also had this really strong sense of God's sovereignty. And he also introduced the idea of predestination. Um, he said that you cannot argue with God, that you have to be grateful in any case in which you find yourself. And he very much influenced the English Puritans <coughs> who worked hard for their salvation. Okay? And the, as, a, as a result, it also influenced the Puritan work ethic, which, of course, is going to come uh, not from one continent, but it's going to jump to two continents. Um, the third wing of the Reformation were the Radicals. These were the Anabaptists. They developed in Zurich around the Zwingli followers, and their discipleship was centered around ancient patterns. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> um, really? Okay. What does it bring up to your mind, Jerry, when you said when I said ancient patterns? The song, ancient words that we've heard. Oh, that's and true. And of course, that's true. Re the restoration. Yes. Restoring the ancient pattern. That's it. The restoration was very much uh, going to be an offshoot of this idea that there are ancient patterns, and if we just uh, follow those, that we will restore the New Testament church. I think Basil Barrett Baxter wrote a book to that effect. I think you're right. Yeah. I had forgotten about that. Oh. I grew up with it. <laughs> oh, that's neat. Um, let's see. Um, okay, so <clears throat> also the Anabaptists really embraced believer's baptism. Now, when, when I was going through that with my son last night, he was like, well, what other kind is there? And I said, well, there's infant baptism. They had the church, capital C, had instituted infant baptism, and so everyone in Europe had been baptized as an infant. The Anabaptists shake things up but by really embracing this idea of a believer's baptism, and uh, it did not go over well, I can tell you. <laughs> um, they were very much pacifists, and so if the magistrate said, you've got to fight, uh, they would say, uh, no. We, we don't do that as Christians. Um, they advocated for the separation of church and state for that reason. They wanted to practice their religion without being told what to do by the country that they were living in. 
And, um, but of course, at that point in time, Europe was not ready for this idea of separation of church and state. Now the second generation of the Anabaptists uh, were the Mennonites and the Amish. And so that gives you a little bit of a, a trail to follow. And then, this is in the 16th century. Um, of course, the second generation would be the 17th century, okay? And then the fourth wing of the Reformation in the 16th century were um, the English Reformation. And as I mentioned, the English Reformation is its own bag. Um, there were two wings of the Reformation. There were the Anglicans, which is um, from the Church of England, and we're going to talk about how that comes to be, and the Puritans. And I'm going to tell you how that came to be, too. So let's just start with uh, <coughs> Henry Tudor. Um, we know him as Henry VIII, and what do you think of automatically when you think of Henry VIII? Wives. Wives, wives, and more wives. Um, he... <laughs> He wanted a male heir in like the worst way. And I've forgotten how many pregnancies his wife had. I think it was 11. Uh, it could be more. Um, but she was never able to bring a, a baby to full term, except for their daughter, Mary. Mary uh, uh, was able to live and thrive. And so, um, he falls in love with Anne Boleyn, and she will not um, let him have his way with her like he had with his, her sister and many, many other women um, because she thought she would, you know, whenever he got tired of his paramours, he kicked him to the curb, and she didn't want to be kicked to the curb. So for two years, he wrestled with um, the Catholic Church and the Pope in Rome and um, finally decided to break with them in 1534. And so not only did he declare himself to be head of the Church of England, which gave forth to Anglicans, but he also seized all the church lands. And so monasteries were given, monastery lands were abandoned and then given as favors to his landed gentry. And so they were very loyal to him because, of course, if you give a gift, then you've, you've got a client-patron relationship, and so the, the client then returns the favor and is very supportive of the king. Um, this, to me, it, uh, is the turning point in architectural history. Um, because at th from this point forward, there is a heavy emphasis on mansions, and not, not palaces, but mansions for the landed gentry. Uh, and this springs forth um, a whole new breed of, of um, house ownership 
that never happened previously in history. What would be the difference between a palace and a mansion? Okay, a uh, palace would be the where the king and his courtiers lived, and uh, a palace would support many different family units. Okay, it's, it wasn't just the king and queen that lived in them. Uh, there were lots of courtiers and counselors and so forth that would live there with the king and the queen. Okay, and then the a manor house would be for one family and then their staff. So it's that that would be the difference. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So okay. There were a lot more manor houses than there would have been castles. Yes. Yes. Uh, castles were more or less a medieval um, invention, and then manor houses became part of this Renaissance movement. And you even see it a little bit in Italy, like for example, in the duchies. Um, they didn't have a, the nation of Italy, they had duchies like the Duchy of Florence, the Duchy of Rome, the Duchy of Geneva, uh, I mean, uh, Genoa and Venice, um, those, those would have, um, those would be ruled like in Florence, the Medici. So the Medici, well they had a palace basically <laughs> because it was so huge. But up to this point in history, we just don't have archeological evidence of fabulous houses. The architectural record shows that people lived in communities, but not separate and apart from each other. Um, what about the Getty um, Museum that you showed? Mm -hmm. um, is, is okay, that now that that you know what, I'm glad you said that because you're right. That was for um, a family and well, his household. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, I, that's a good point. You, you see it when prosperity happens. And one of the things that you see about England is that they're very late to the Renaissance because financially they just, they're just not there. Um, you begin to see uh, France, um, goodness, France was so, so fabulously wealthy, but the wealth flowed up to the king, and the peasants were not blessed by any, any measure. Okay. Okay, so when he died, his only son, Edward VI, takes the throne in 1547. And during his rule, theology actually moves away from Catholicism. His, his dad basically took Catholicism and just gave it a new name and a new head. He became the sovereign of the church. Um, under his son, his counselors were very wedded to the Protestant movement, and so theology moves away from Catholicism to the Protestantism that is more connected to the mainland, Zwingli and so forth. So. During this time, and I'm, this is uh, one of the things that I've discovered in trying to put all these thoughts together for you is that there, at this period of time, 
everything is not perfectly linear. Everything is sort of like um, millennials think circularly. Is that is that fair to say that they can see different pockets of things and then just put it together? That's a gift they have. Well, that is certainly what's going on in Europe at this moment. Everything is popping up here and there. So William Tinda. To the divided kingdom. You know, I know that's a long time ago, but you had different kings. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. And uh, so William Tyndall, who is an Englishman, wrote how to understand Scripture. And he wrote in Germany because he, it wasn't safe for him to write in England. So when he translated the Greek Scriptures into English, uh, his notes were full of Lutheran theology, and his notes expounded very much on grace. But as he studied, he began to see a theme of covenant relationship with God emerging, especially from Deuteronomy, the 20, 28th chapter. But the whole book of Deuteronomy is full of this language of, I'm creating a covenant with my people. I have chosen my people. I will give you a land, and you will slay the Canaanites and take ownership of the land. Now, God chooses his people, and he creates a covenant with them. That's, that's really important. He will bless them if they will serve him. And if they don't, then he will allow the, the owners of the land to overcome them, right? And uh, so Tyndale is reading this, and he becomes terrified. And so he chooses covenant relationship with God over grace. It's very much in the Puritan way of thought I've got, or the John Calvin way of thought of thinking, I have to work for my salvation. Okay? So, in his second edition of the English translation, his notes were all about covenant interpretations. He proposed the idea that England was the later day covenanted people uh, of God and that they that England was his chosen and therefore they must keep his commandments as if they were God's chosen people so he took parliament to mean the, um, that they were equivalent to the Israel elders of the land. And he took Edward VI to be equal to Josiah, who was the young man uh, who rediscovered the law of God and brought all of Judah into a, a covenanted relationship with God again. So... When Mary took the throne after Edward died, he was very young when he died, so Mary came on board. And do you remember who Mary's, was Mary's mother Catholic or was she Protestant? Catholic. She was. And it was because he, she could not bear Edward VIII, a male heir, that he divorced her. And became the head of the Church of England. Well, Mary didn't forget that. I mean, that was a terrible slight. And 
she um, she came on board and said, "Fui on this Protestantism, I'm going to restore the true church, capital C, and we're going to go back to uh, Catholicism." And uh, so, under Mary, Tyndale saw that God was cursing England because they had broken the covenant when they had the chance to reform under Edward VI. So, their cry to restore the ancient church was silenced because, as we all know, Mary was referred to as Bloody Mary because she um, tortured and, um, and burned so many Protestants during her reign. Um, the first person that she burned, as you might imagine, was Archbishop Cranmer. And Archbishop, Archbishop Cranmer was the first, uh, he wasn't the first, he, he was Henry VIII's counselor. So he was the one that said, just go ahead and divorce um, your first wife and, and get, get on with it. And so, of course, Mary, in retribution, uh, had him burned first. Um, Was he the Archbishop of Cranmer? Yeah, uh-huh, good, very good, yeah. Um, the Protestants then were faced with three options. They could continue as they were, or um, they could go underground, um, now, when I say continue as they were, I mean they could go back to the Catholic Church, which no, no good Protestant is going to do. They could go underground, which many of them did. They stayed, uh, they would worship in the Catholic Church and then they would go to someone's remote barn and worship as Protestants. Um, or they could go into exile so that they could have freedom. And so. <clears throat> This is what a lot of English people decided to do. They fled to Geneva, Strasbourg, Frankfurt. I think I just spelled that wrong. And Basel. Uh, these these were areas in Europe where you had freedom of choice to to worship as a Protestant without the ramifications being that your lands and your life was were taken. Okay. So then Mary dies, and there is great rejoicing in the land. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, um, Anne Boleyn's daughter, takes the throne, and she rules from 1558 to 1603. So she is able to take a very um, grieving uh, country, and she's able to get things sort of on a... Um, peace, and the way she did it was she had a she had a choice. Um, one of the things that I, let me say this before I go too much further: the Anglicans that were in exile rushed back home, but while they were in Europe, they they went to Europe as Anglicans, Church of England. They came back as Puritans. Okay. So this is when Puritanism first shows its face in England, and this is going to play a big role 
in church history in England and then in America. Because at this point, America had been discovered. Um, Elizabeth has to choose between how to function with these strongly held religious beliefs. She's got the Catholics on one hand who have just been in power. Uh, they have Puritans that are very strongly, um, have strong opinions on one hand. And so she decides to choose the middle way and stay with the Church of England. Now, the Church of England, as we've already said with um, Henry VIII, he basically took the Catholic Church and just um, uh, made himself the head of the church instead of um, the Pope. So when Elizabeth rules, she is the head of the church, of the Anglican Church. And so in choosing this middle way, she's able to maintain as much peace as possible. Now, at, um, this does cause Catholics to go underground um, that for fear of their lives. Um, she did not purge. Elizabeth chose not to purge in the same way that her sister Mary had, but um, it, it was still a very dangerous, scary time to to be a part of the Church of England. Were the Puritans okay? Uh, the Puritans were okay, but they too were not given sanction to worship in Anglican churches. <clears throat> and uh, you will see that in Anglican churches, Christ also comes down off the cross. So uh, at this point in time, um, Mary is... Uh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth is seated with the congregants when when they worship. That's really important for me to tell you because when we get to James the first, who succeeds her, it, it's going to flip. So she's trying to do the middle way, and she is an avowed Protestant. Okay, and. Um, because she has the money and because it is the sanctioned church of England, she is able to build churches. Now, in other nations, we're not really seeing uh, Protestant churches. And, and there's, so there's not an architectural vocabulary that goes with this period of time except in England. And the, the most significant part of that is that it's coming out of English Gothic architecture. So you still see the spires and the crockets, and uh, this portal is very Gothic, of course. But you're beginning to see what we call a Tudor arch introduced. And the Tudor arch is probably one of my favorite architectural languages, but um, but we don't see a whole lot of Tudor um, architecture, especially in America, and a great deal of it has been burned down, um, like in, the, in World War One, World War Two. so we don't have a lot of examples of it. Okay, now I'm going to introduce a villain, uh, James the First. Uh, when, when Elizabeth dies, uh, 
um, she has no ears. And so the next in line through, way back here, Henry VIII had a sister. And through her line came the Stuart, the Stuart. I wish I could speak like a Scottishman, the Stuarts. And um, James I was already King of Scotland when he took the throne of the King of England and Scotland. And he really went after the Puritans. He established himself as the authority of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and he went after the Puritans. So uh, he also hated the Geneva Bible. So he uh, had his scholars translate it into what we know is the King James Version of the Bible. Yes, ma'am. Were, were they leaders in the church because they were educated, or were they leaders in the church because they were powerful? Power. It was, it was because he was a monarch. <laughs> yeah. But he hated the Geneva Bible, so he must have known something about it. Um, well, yes. He could, I mean, it, the Geneva Bible was writ, written in English. So at this point in history, people could read the word for themselves, which is one of the big challenges to the church, capital C church, uh, authority. Yeah. Good. Okay. So uh, he also changed the position of where the monarch would sit in worship. He did not deign for himself to be seated with the other people. He had a balcony from which he could sit and purvey and be seen as the authority. Okay, so when you go into an Anglican church from his time, you, you will see that little architectural feature. And um, I, I think this is where it gets really personal for, for me. Um, uh, I did some tracking on how many ever used the app uh, with the little leaves. What is it? Where you you trace your ancestry.com. Ancestry okay, so I played with it, and I decided to take my dad's line and do the fir the firstborn male, and just back it up all the ways as far as I could go. Well, I stopped in 1606 when the very first case moved from England to America in 1606. I know, I was brave. So, um, and of course, New York was at that point a uh, property of Holland. And of course, in Holland, you had religious freedom. So I could be wrong, but I just have a feeling that he came over because he was a Puritan and was avoiding the, the persecution of King James. I know, isn't that cool? And then on my, my mother's side, the very, first, um, <clears throat> the very first of my mother's line came over on <laughs> uh, to, to found the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So I know. So I, I think it's so interesting that it looks like both of my family's genesis came from fleeing King James and the persecution of the, 
um, Puritans. You could be royalty. Oh, I could be in the DAR. <laughs> How about that? No, that's not my thing. So, um, okay. I whizzed through. <laughs> I can't believe, you know, in 45 minutes, it's hard to get through that much history. But, uh, and probably I've, I've given you threads that you would like to pick up at some point. So I'm going to give you some interesting uh, fiction, and you can probably help me out with this. Um, Ken Follett, who's, I love him as an author. Um, he actually came from the Brethren which is another movement like the Churches of Christ. And because we're so far apart um, geographically, we were in the South and they were in the North, we, I don't think we've ever figured out until just recently that we're of the same strain. <laughs> so he comes from the Brethren and, uh, and grew up in very plain buildings. And so he was fascinated by the architecture and he started writing like the Pillars of the Earth series that gives you an insight into how uh, Romanesque architecture moved into the Gothic structures and so forth. And he has just, his newest book is called uh, Pillar of Cloud, not Pillar of Fire, but wait, Pillar of Fire, right? James Follett? I'm going to make sure that I'm not telling you something that's not right. How do you spell Follett? F-O-L-L-E-T. You know, somebody else that we know, Brian McLaren, is a leader in the Emerging Church. His parents were... Plymouth Brethren missionaries. Really? Yeah. Wow. He spoke at uh, the Zoe conference a couple of times in Woodmont Hills. Oh, Ken did? I mean, no, uh, Brian. Brian. That's how I, I didn't know about it until Brian was, Brian was the one that introduced me to the idea that we're the same strain. Okay, A Column of Fire. And it's all about the period of time. Um, it goes from Queen Mary to Queen Elizabeth uh, and and stops at her death and um, so it is um, it's a really fascinating read if you want to know a little bit about how how people went underground and then came up and then back, went back down um, it's a it's a fascinating read and there's another um, there's a national artist uh, author that has written, and I just realized, oh, I had to go to Atlanta last night um, and then come right back so I could teach. So I don't think I'm percolating on all 